0: Hello and welcome to today's edition of Navara FM. I'm your host Ash Sarkar at IOCs for those so inclined and I'm here with Harry Stopes at Harry Stopes and James Eastwood at James underscore Eastwood. Academics, campaigners, all round good eggs. Don't forget to tweet along using the hashtag NavarraFM, and today we are talking about casualisation in education. So, Harry and James both work with FACE, which stands for Fighting Against Casualisation in Education. Harry is also a freelance journalist undertaking a PhD, and James also organises with SOAS Fractionals for Fair Play. So, today, as I said, we're talking about casualisation and the university as an employer more generally we'll be discussing the increasing trend of ever more precarious forms of employment through short-term or zero-hours contracts, outsourcing and a reliance on part-time labour within the context of wider attacks on workers' rights, the implementation of a metrics and management logic in higher education and, of course, the manufacturing of labour crises in public institutions as a means of furthering an agenda of privatisation and marketisation. And just for a bit of hopefulness. We'll also be talking about possibilities for resistance and the potential for new radical tactics in workplace organising. So the last fortnight has seen massive developments in regards to all this stuff, both nationally and globally. And hopefully we'll be able to mull over some of the connections or at least act like we're making some sense out of some of these developments um just a quick rundown of some of the more recent stories there's been the release of the government higher education green paper there's been a student occupation of SOAS about outsourcing and course closures big up SOAS occupation by the way they've been great Uh, there's been ongoing cleaners fights regarding sick pay holiday pay and pensions both at campuses and workplaces more generally across the country. There's been the grants not fees demonstration the other day, the ongoing junior doctors pay and hours dispute, and also the success of South African students in scrapping a proposed increase in fees. So all in all, an awful lot to get through and a lot to discuss. Um, but I guess we should start with the basics. So Harry, if you could explain to us a bit about what casualisation is and how it's been manifesting in UK higher education.
1: Sure. um by way of introdu- introducing that subject maybe just talk briefly about what faces fighting against casualization in education which is a group a nationwide network of academics and activists um at all levels within um academia um postgraduate students who are, who teach um such as myself and James um Permanent academics who are employed in what what one might consider a more traditional form of academic labour and people who are in various kinds of, in inverted commas, casual contracts. So hourly paid, short term, um, zero hours in some cases. And th- that's the issue that we're talking about and that we're kind of um, trying to organise around. The notion that, um, or the fact that, in fact, I should say, that... Um, uh, Employment conditions, pay, pay conditions, hours and so on in higher education are being eroded. They're becoming less secure, less permanent and more precarious. And obviously these, these issues, as you said, are not um, uh, isolated within education. Um, I mean, the, the same trends are more advanced in further education, for example. They're more advanced in schools, although I don't know a lot about that. But I mean, there's a lot more supply teachers and agency working in high schools and primary schools and so on. And obviously, these issues are very present in other other sectors of, um, of work, other forms of work, and um, not just in the professions, and in fact, especially not in the professions, obviously. So this is part of a much wider issue. So when we talk about casualization, we're talking about... Um, uh obviously as is as, as is implicit in the um in the word we're talking about a process and and an erosion over time which is which we need to sort of historicise and we need to think about where it fits into larger changes in um the economy large and specifically in uh labor conditions so that's where we're coming from as a starting point
2: yeah I, just to add to that I think it's interesting that what we've seen in the last um couple of decades really is that a process of casualization the making more casual of terms of employment um moving from uh sectors which traditionally were quite insecure um and where um, uh, conditions were very poor moving into um professions and areas of the economy and, and sectors which um are major, socially important, historically prestigious um, uh, forms of employment. So um, those professions I'm thinking of, you know, education, higher education is one. But actually, if you look at what happens to the terms and conditions of barristers, solicitors um, uh, recently, the pay they're getting, particularly for legally aided work, what's happening to nurses and doctors, um, uh, and now what's happening to lecturers. Um, I think what's particularly telling in recent years is the way that trends which are historical and which have always existed in the history of um, uh, the struggle between um, labour and capital are um, encroaching on um, sectors which we don't historically think of as precarious, but which are in fact now increasingly and almost normally so.
0: I mean, what would you make of a <coughs> criticism that says the way in which this is being framed sounds a bit like, well, my parents were middle class and I went to university and I expected a stable middle class professional existence coming out of that. Um, is there a way to frame this where um, an analysis of casualization isn't implicitly a complaint that class reproduction isn't happening as it ought to
2: absolutely i don't want to give the impression that i'm somehow uh, because of my white middle class uh, male privilege i'm entitled to a kind of a permanent secure job um i simply i, I would simply point out that um this is now something which is becoming more visible because it's affecting people who are in positions of historical privilege and that what we need to do is is take this as an opportunity not simply to hold back the um, tide of casualization to those who we think can deal with it, but actually to attack the principle head on because it's it's increasingly less um sustainable to say this is only something which is affecting a minority of people. this is now the norm um, and in in approaching it as a norm, we can transform it for all people as as opposed to just those who don't, because of their uh, privilege, expect to, to have
1: um, something different. I mean, uh, to add to that, um, obviously, we're organising in education because that's the sector that we're in. We're not suggesting that this is um, uniquely important or that, that these issues, are, as I said, uh, um, uniquely apply here. Um, to add to what James said before about um, how these kinds of issues are affecting other professions, obviously... What's happening among other things in the professions is that there's a a much greater divergence between, um, for example, legal aid lawyers um, doing, say, criminal defense versus, um, I mean, say, for example, people still working in criminal law, but defending, I don't know, city fraud or whatever, who are earning hundreds of thousands, probably millions, I don't know. So um, and this kind of polarization um, is happening within professions as well um as to, yeah as to the the sort of the issue of i mean the point the point to make is that um obviously by con- it's by contextualizing these issues that we highlight that and that we uh james and i certainly agree that um as you say these 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 things can't be confronted by some kind of um special pleading or something like that that's not that's not what we're talking about at all but this is um another window onto a much wider transformation of work under um neoliberal capitalism i suppose is the, the one way of one way of describing it i mean not to suggest that these things are exactly the same, but you also see, for example, an erosion of um, pay um, or a disappearance of jobs in skilled manual work and and you know these I think that obviously there are differences right, but there are some patterns that are similar, and that's that 's where I think you need to find the um, the the common uh, ground and that 's why that 's why it is a bigger issue than just um, social reproduction, for example it 's also
2: because actually um, education. Uh, has an enormously important role in the reproduction of other kinds of hierarchies, right? That it, in theory, should be a, a space of. Um, uh social mobility it should be a space where everyone has access to uh, education the opportunities to enjoy the space of the university um and we know in fact that casualization disproportionately affects those within sectors who are um women who are black minority ethnic um or um who um are from working class backgrounds so this is about making uh, a vitally important sector higher education and education more broadly into something which is accessible for all and isn't um as it once was um uh um something which you can only sustain with independent um uh, sort of means or which you can only get into as a result of independent means
0: um it's interesting that we're talking about the way in which uh there's essentially been a kind of trickle up in terms of casualization so it's hit the most precarious, vulnerable workers first, as you said, um, mostly affecting women, part-time workers, um, migrant workers. That's another big one, especially at SOAS, in terms of the way in which cleaners, catering, security were targeted first in terms of outsourcing. Um, But there's also a global dimension, which I'd like to briefly mention in this kind of introductory period, we often think of casualization as a process simply affecting white-collar workers, office workers, um, but it's actually happening in what we would think of as classic manufacturing, uh, um, you know, kind of uh, manual labour as well. In Pakistan, for example, um, the Lipton tea factories, which are all owned by uh, Unilever, it hires eight thousand workers through contract labor agencies. So they do all the work of actual Unilever employees, except they're barred from joining unions, they're lower wages, faced with job insecurity, and they're unable to claim basic worker rights like paid medical leave. Um, So at one factory um, in Pakistan, which employs 745 employees, uh, 723 are contract workers and are classed as temporary workers. So that's massive, and we're talking about a global shift in terms of uh, the way labour is structured, not just something that uh, occurs in Europe, and America. And so I think it's important to broaden the discussion a bit.
1: Certainly. I mean, um, just another example off the top of my head, Sports Direct famously, I think almost all of their staff are on zero-hours contracts. Um, that I mean, again... Again, to underline the point that we've 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 all been making that this is much wider than than what we're than than just our sector.
2: What's also interesting, actually, is that um, uh, a lot of people who are involved in the fight against this at SOAS are um, people who who are themselves um, students and researchers researching issues about casualisation all over the world. So, for example, my colleague, um, excellent colleague, Lorenzo Monaco. Um, Just finished her PhD studying casualization in the auto sector in India. And many of the lessons she learned um, doing militant research, studying that um, uh, kind of workplace uh, in India, informed very much um, the sort of strategies and tactics we were seeking to adopt, actually, at, at SOAS. This is an Im- implicit um, sort of inspiration. It's not a direct uh, imitation. But I think that underlines, actually, that this is, this is a continuum of experience um, that affects, obviously, some people far worse than others. Um, but in identifying that those shared conditions,
1: it's something we can fight... We can fight in a hopefully a, a coordinated way and it's interesting it 's interesting that James mentions that because that sort of speaks to an issue that that, that you know we 've talked about before and I think is very important, which is that one of the things that we 're sort of confronting here um, in terms of organizing within um, education and especially within higher education is there's there 's a, there's a it's very common for academics to think of themselves as special, and that's something you already alluded to, not just in terms of I'm special because I've been promised X, Y, or Z, but also I'm special because you know I work with my brain and, and I'm so clever and so on. Um, and actually part of the, the, the struggle, and there, there are lots of other things too, but part of it is to actually really um, address... Um, academic workers' work, and to think of it as work. You know, to, to be an academic is, in many ways, to be a quote-unquote mere worker. I think that's a phrase that, that somebody used. I can't remember who. Um, so this is this kind of ties in quite nicely to what James just said about um, you know Lorenza's, um uh, inspirations from her work on car workers.
0: Um, so one of the biggest stories of today is, of course, the higher education uh, green paper and. Lots of, uh, lots of things to uh, get to grips with within it um, no one has yet read the whole thing hmm. <laughs> um, but in the overviews I think one of the most significant um, aspects of it is the way in which uh, breaking down y- the um, breaking down transparency and democratic processes within universities is absolutely central to promoting this agenda of privatization, casualization, um, and the marketization of education. Uh, at SOAS, um, one of the central demands of the occupation has been the democratization of the university and um, financial transparency. And I've, I've got a few thoughts on how this might be framed more radically. So to engage with this issue of th- these are much broader changes to employment, um, there's a global context, rather than just arguing for better representation of academic staff and student interests, the proposition can be everyone has a say in everything that affects them. So you're thinking about cleaners, support staff, local schools, people who live and work in the area, homeless people who are cleared off university campuses by police and by security so you start thinking about the university not just in terms of the people who are directly employed by it but the space that it inhabits and the kinds of economic and social relations involved in that and I think one of the things I'd really like to get into more is if the if the universities are now businesses what kind of businesses are they how many other businesses are gentrifiers? Redevelopers um, involved in the policing of the city, um, employers, educators, all these things at once. And maybe mm-hmm. we could crack open um, these wider transformations of the university um, more broadly, not just in terms of employment.
2: I can say something a little bit about that relating to SOAS and sort of Bloomsbury area in London um, more broadly. I think it's very interesting that. Um, in the last few years, um, we've seen a number of um, controversies, uh, demonstrations, clashes, if you like, over uh, the public space surrounding um, colleges in the Bloomsbury area. Um, so there was a huge cops off campus demonstration uh, last year um, at SOAS as a result of the way in which um, the University of London was um, uh taking heavy-handed tactics against student occupations um and involving the police in the courts um in a space which is meant for learning and free association and exchange of ideas so um yes i think you're right in pointing out that um as universities think of think of their buildings not only as learning spaces but as assets I mean, only yesterday I was, um, you know, um, uh, talking to the, um, some of the um, finance um, people at SOAS um, through the union, um, and you know that their their priorities are um, are shifting as a result of new constraints on universities, new um, set, a new sense of the importance of universities as financially sustainable. They want to um, uh, they want to make sure they have a um, uh, a stake in the huge um potential asset that is london property um and along with that comes um a change in your attitude to how you use and relate to that space um so i would i would completely agree that um that if we want to broaden this sense of um uh, of what the university is and university of course actually does mean uh, in the word universal available to all um we do need to think about the fundamental contradiction between uh, Thinking about something as a business, which is uh, private, and something which um, uh, like the university, which is supposed to be um, universal and part of the commons, actually.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the the issues that you you raise there Ash, are really, um, you know, it's a you said crack open. It's a really big knot, right, to crack. But um, um, I mean, I think it's interesting to just spinning off from that. I suppose it's interesting to look to. Um, the United States, which is where I think you know the people who 've been rewriting or redesigning the Brit- the British University in the last five years certainly and, and longer look to themselves and exactly as you say, you, you know universities like um uh, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore is a big property developer, gentrifier, and so on you ha- and you have many incidents of them um, um, campus police who have um, n- not to my knowledge. Um, killed people, but you know, cer- fairly recently killed right. someone. Okay, so exactly, and and certainly are, are implicated in exactly the same racist policing that you see from the, uh, you know, the the uh, actual police, if you like, in the U.S. Another example which
2: came to my attention only yesterday through my um, my supervisor um, was a demonstration that took place um, in University of Minnesota, which had invited um, uh, as um, a speaker um, Professor Moshe Halbatal, who is um, an Israeli um, academic, uh, who's deeply involved in the writing of the Israeli military's um, uh, ethical code and is in many ways an apologist for um, Israeli war crimes Um, he was invited to speak to that campus and a protest um, prevented that speech from going ahead Um, and one of the slogans used in the sort of the mic check that was obstructing the demonstration was that how can the university afford to pay a $5,000 honorarium to Moshe Halbatal, an Israeli war crimes apologist and yet it's refusing to back down in negotiations with the union where frontline workers are not being paid um uh, any more than $15 an hour. Okay, so at that to me is a, an amazing example of how you can take uh, an issue which is in some senses rarefied, right how much per hour um, a casual worker in higher education gets paid and linking it to a wider set of questions about what is the university for, what kind of engagement do we want to take place in the university, and how does how does that engagement relate to a broader set of uh, oppressive relations taking place globally
0: I mean I think this is a really important point that I would love to explore more. Um, which is the connection between these economic relations in terms of contracts and how it um, results in the suppression of free speech and free thought at universities. Um, There's an incredible article on Navarra Wire um, by John Murray regarding the um, internal outsourcing so-called at Warwick University. Mm. So essentially Warwick owns the outsourcing firm and so can argue that it's not outsourcing at all and so this scheme's called teach hire um, and basically it's internally run funded and controlled but it has a weird kind of autonomy which means that it's interior when it suits managers and exterior when it doesn't uh, one of the things that uh, Murray points out is that it won't be directly employing anyone instead academics will be given the chance as candidates to enter into a contract of service for each assignment and it's it's really bizarre when you look into it um they will literally be denied the right to any formal employment and they can be dismissed at any time for any reason
1: um it's interesting you brought up teach hire um the good news is that um that's what you just said isn't quite true anymore in the sense that oh, teach hire has <laughs> basically been scrapped and um b- basically because of a very successful very quickly mobilized um campaign at Warwick and um and uh, through face and others, but especially the, the the colleagues at Warwick. But yeah, I mean, Teach Higher was uh, essentially um, Warwick University is an interesting. Um, place i mean i don't know enormous a lot about it but um it it owns among other things something called warwick employment group which is um a sort of um conglomerate of um employment agencies and agencies that do things to do with higher education and related services it owns an organization called uh, or a temp agency basically called Unitemps. and teach hire was supposed to be something to be added to the Warwick Employment Group stable of organizations, which would basically be exactly, as you say, a temp agency for academics. So when um, Teach Hire was kind of, um, you know, discovered or we kind of first started, to, you know, the website went live and so on in roughly kind of April-ish of this year, there was a sample um, contract of, um, well, not employment because it explicitly stated that one wouldn't be an employee, one would be a worker and that's a very specific kind of an important distinction in terms of the rights that you have specifically around, I think, um, unfair dismissal. So exactly as you say, I mean, one wouldn't be employed, um, one would be a worker, one could lose one's job at any time and so on and so forth. And this was, um, I think, in a way, this was the most stark example of, you know, um, casualisation and I think it... Again, going back to this idea that academics are special, um, I think that's sort of one of the reasons why it was quite easy to put pressure on Warwick to back down on Teach High, because it looks bad for the university to imply that its it's teaching staff are um, kind of disposable in that way, even if actually it thinks that i think it wants to be more subtle about it but that um but it's interesting you know that the notion of being employed for a private organisation like that there was a a colleague um who was at work well i probably still is at work as far as i know who was employed to do some work um through unitemps which is the uh, employment agency at work that does exist which usually is used for support staff and administrative clerical and administrative staff but she was doing some teaching through uni temps and during the last set of um strikes she went on strike um, and lost her job and um um basically didn't have a, lost her job for going on strike which would be um illegal, were she an employee, but she wasn't because she was a worker employed through this arm's length um, subsidiary, which wasn't the university. She was employed by UNICEF, she wasn't employed by the university. So that's an example of why and and how, um, for example, uh, trade union rights are obviously very pertinent when it comes to outsourcing and stuff like that.
0: I mean, this links back to what's been going on at SUS, which hopefully, James, you can explain a bit more about. When I'm talking about freedom of thought, freedom of expression, these aren't just academic freedoms. These are political ones as expressed by workers within um, their place of employment. So if you could talk a bit about what's been going on and how these things link together at SOAS.
2: Sure. Well, SOAS is in, a, I think, a very interesting place right now. I would go as far as to say it's um, sort of on the front line um, of the battles being fought in higher education. Anyone interested in what's going on in higher education in the UK um, should come to SOAS to find out what's going on um, because I think it's um, an enormously revealing um, uh, uh, confrontation that's going on um, effectively uh, there right now. Um, we... We have a uh, student occupation which has been in um, uh, in one of the corporate spaces, okay, of um, of Soas um, for um, uh, a number of weeks now, and this is a space that's normally used um, uh, for sort of corporate functions for um uh, for renting out for generating revenue through um through that not what we normally think a university is um uh, is meant to be doing and as at warwick for example they're developing all these umbrella groups and subsidiaries through which to generate revenue okay so it, it, this the very act of occupying that space is is attempted to to is attempting to raise a question about what is the university for but the the occupation was also a reaction to a, a set of proposals which were leaked and which had now been officially withdrawn but which many fear are still unofficially on the table um which um uh would have envisaged huge course cuts um uh across the school 184 modules um uh, with withdrawn and um done so on the basis of crude metrics, Okay, the kind of metrics actually that the government's green paper um, want to uh, encourage universities to use when they evaluate their courses. Precisely those metrics were being used um, already by, um, by SOAS when they developed this um, disastrous uh, document. So the students have um, occupied in, in um, protest against that and also in support of an ongoing campaign which has had many successes which is still um, yet to reach uh, full victory which is the um, campaign to bring the cleaners in-house and employ them on fair terms and conditions uh, as well as a broader campaign against job uh, job cuts which are seem to be on the horizon with SOAS seeking to make a 6 point5 million pounds in cuts over the next um, few uh, over, the, over the next three years I believe um, so there have been a number of um, uh, amazing educational events at SOAS, raising all of these questions about what the university is for in a space traditionally used by SOAS in order to generate um, uh, revenue in a, in a much more straightforwardly commercial way. Um, and last week, um, what we saw was a really the, the sort of peak of this um, activism when... Um, as a result of a number of um, um, protests going on inside the school this, um, the management chose to um, suspend on charges of gross misconduct um the leader of one of the main unions on campus in, uh, on campus unison um, The charge being that um, he um, uh, somehow aided and abetted a process by simply opening a security gate with his um, with with his pass um now, these charges have been um, downgraded and his suspension has been um, lifted, but only as a result of huge mobilization on Thursday and Friday um, uh, last week, when effectively SOAS was shut down by not only student mobilization from uh, the occupation, but also um, unison workers and academics refusing to cross um, uh, picket lines, unofficially going on um, uh, industrial action in support of that worker. and. Only this week that's been, that decision's been been reversed and I think we have a real opportunity now to start to have a different conversation about what kind of institution um, SOAS is.
0: This is something I'm particularly interested in. Um, hopefully someone wants to pick up on this thread. of Was this form of mobilisation, essentially a wildcat strike supported by academic staff, support staff, going from some of the most senior academics to some of the most precariously employed people in the university as well as students obviously and interested parties in the area is that a new form of workplace organizing or is an old form that's kind of being rediscovered and brought back in response to these um uh, the incursions of the logic of the marketplace into academia
2: i can answer that um the um so I think uh, you know, wildcat strike is um, uh, something which is not, of course, not new. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this is where the labor movement was born. We only have a labor movement because of um, uh, wildcat strikes, which were taken by very brave individuals, um, uh, in, in, particularly in the nineteenth century and early part of the twentieth century. Um, so this is um, uh, this is simply uh, a remembering of uh, an organizational tradition which we have forgotten, um, but. What's interesting as well is that it. Um, I, I was particularly inspired by what happened at Soas last week because it was a. Um, it was yes the revival of that old tactic, but also its integration into a um, into a much broader and a broader array and diversity of uh, of tactics. The you know. The occupation was crucial in mobilizing um, uh, for, um, this, uh, f- for this for uh, this day of these two days of action um, they were uh, they were the students occupying were very active um, on the picket lines were very involved um, in having conversations persuading students that this was something which was happening in defense of everyone's education um, uh, rather than um, something which was um, as portrayed by management a sort of selfish self aggrandizing um, uh, Protest, Um, and of course, um, you know, social networks, um, um, uh, social media were very important in uh, bringing press and wider attention to that um, uh, to that demonstration. In fact, the morning of um, Thursday, the new director of of Soas, Valerie Amos, was um, was. Her her line a uh, line again and again. Rather than saying that this was a um, a wildcat strike, what she was actually saying was this is a demonstration which has gone viral on social media, um, and this is her way of saying that um, oh I'm not in control. Of it. This is nothing to do with what's going on at SOAS. It's gone viral on social media. What I think is important to restate actually is that this it's ver- it's that very conjunction of a sort of a. Um, new um, uh, mode of organizing through social media with a very traditional tactic of shutting down the university um, uh, which produced the pressure and achieved the results that um, we saw
1: Yeah I mean I think um, as James has said obviously the, 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 the idea of a wildcat strike or the practice of a wildcat strike isn't new and I think it's really just to sort of take a moment to note and to really admire the fact that it was the most precarious workers at the so-called, you know, at the bottom of the university, in in quotes, who were really um, taking that action, then supported by their academic colleagues and and supported by students and so on. But the new and the interesting thing, I guess, is exactly as James said, that the fact that um, that issue of the victimization of one trade unionist is being explicitly linked and very clearly, you know, this this idea is very clearly articulated. This is about... um, reimagining what the university is or trying to defend aspects of how it is and trying to change aspects of how it is and, and try to, trying to resist um, management's vision of how it is. So this kind of shows something that w- you know, we were talking about right at the beginning, how these issues of casualization, which is one of many issues in universities in general, um, is related to the wider issue of work, is related to the wider issue of education, what it's for, who it's for, what it's supposed to achieve... Um, how people can be involved in it, and so on. So that's uh, that's what's particularly interesting for me. as a not somebody? I'm not a soer, so I'm somewhat of an outsider. But that was an interesting thing for me to observe last week.
0: Um, one of the things that uh, was has been incredibly striking as a long time Bloomsbury lurker over the last five years or so um, is that in 2010, um, when I was a student, we felt so. Uh, we felt like we were visionaries. We thought, oh my God, we're doing all this new stuff and then it kind of collapsed in on itself. And then when you looked at where afterwards momentum came from, uh, where exciting, political, radical action came from, it wasn't from students and it certainly wasn't from academics. It was from... Um, outsourced cleaners and some of the most exciting things that I'd seen were the Tres Cosas uh, protests and the strike action that happened. And what one of the things that I'm interested in is breaking down these boundaries between, uh, you know, activists, academics and then others and looking at how not just um, political meaning is being shaped by the most vulnerable, but it's shaping a body of... Um, I think, really rich intellectual resources through these very direct, disruptive actions in terms of interrupting the way the university functions as a business. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I honestly don't think that there would be such a strong emphasis on um, the issue of borders and border enforcement at universities had it not been for especially SOAS cleaners who'd been victimised a few years ago on that very issue. Um, And if we're talking about what the university is for, um, could one or both of you maybe expand on the way that these political actions have been transformative in breaking down these divisions between activists, academics and others?
2: yeah I can say a bit about that i um so it, the the evolution of the or the sort of um transformation of what kind of a student mobilization in 2010 into something a bit uh, a bit different and I think richer actually um in the struggles you're seeing going on at the moment um a big uh, i mean what's interesting about that change is it, it does actually reflect the realities of what it means to implement a new fee regime on students so the tripling of Of fees for students in 2010 and now the the gradual lifting of that cap in the government's green paper today um, that massively changed the priorities of universities Um, it completely reordered the way in which they think about um, how they run themselves um, because you're suddenly dependent upon um, the annual uh, fluctuation in student numbers Mm -hmm. um, for being financially uh, viable and the response of universities, as I already begun to talk about earlier, has been to think of themselves um, uh, as um, institutions which may fail. In fact, the government's Green Paper today precisely includes measures um, to allow public universities to fail, which I think is a, a shocking um, sort of uh, admission of, of precisely what this policy means, right? All of, all of that means that... that Universities have to find ways to um, uh, or feel they have to find ways to um, save, cut corners. Um, That means a number of things. It means outsourcing your cleaning staff. Mm -hmm. Uh, It means um, particularly um, uh, outsourcing them in a way which um, pushes the consequences um, uh, across borders. Okay, which... um, uh, which um, kind of hires people who are deliberately in the most precarious position um, uh, possible. It also involves um, increasing the levels of casualization among academic staff, because if you want to expand your most profitable courses and cut your um, obscure but enormously academically valuable courses, such as the the many um, uh, hugely important um, and rare languages taught at SOAS, um, you need to be able to hire and fire people quickly. Um, uh, and that's where the pressure is coming on universities to shift their model of um, uh, model of employment. So this change that you describe is a result of um, learning through struggle about what exactly the consequences of fees have been, not just yeah. for students, but for all those who move yeah. through the university as a space. Yeah.
0: Um, this issue about uh, rare languages being taught at SOAS, um, I would very briefly like to um, bang on my drum that the issue of democratising the university is intensely bound up with the issue of decolonizing the university. When you think about universities as repositories of cultural memory and history and mm-hmm. thinking about how, how do we transform that, um, it's no surprise to me that rare languages are one of the first things to go because that's one of the most radical things you can do in terms of uh, discovering... Uh, or engaging with a culture beyond um, colonial interactions. That's a very brief side point. I can see that you're wanting to say something.
1: Oh, no, I was just going to nod along and point out that I suppose that most of the languages one's referring to are not rare in any kind of global sense. Mm. um, That's just a side point. But, I mean, as James said, the whole, whole, um, you know what happened in 2010 and then what's coming um, now with the green paper and and then whatever comes out of that in terms of legislation. Um, And they've obviously signposted what they want. Um, The point is that it's about a transformation of the university in many, many ways. It wasn't just about fees. Obviously, we all know that by now, and and James had just said so. Um, If there's been a transformation of the way that we... um, uh, academics, activists, workers in universities or associated with the universities—the way that we think about struggling in universities—if um, that's transformed, it's it's precisely in response to that, and I think it's had to be in response to that. Um, the way that um, the way that these changes affect everybody in the university and in these very profound ways that are all connected.
0: So we've got roughly 20 minutes of the show left. This is Navara FM. I'm here with Harry Stopes at Harry Stopes and James Eastwood at James underscore Eastwood. And we are talking about casualisation in higher education. Um, In order to broaden what we're talking about a little bit, um, this issue of managed failure, and failure being uh, the model for the government's vision of public institutions and not the exception um i was talking to someone yesterday who is a newly qualified doctor and i was saying well you know what do you make of uh jeremy hunt's so-called concessions in terms uh. of pay 11 uh, percent pay rise i thought was the proposed one
1: yeah it's 11 percent on the basic but the point is that they would be cutting um the various extra payments for overtime and things like that so overall it'd be a cut for most people
0: and also yeah. it wouldn't be uh it would result in a reduction of working hours over the week. So you'd be left with a crisis in terms of there not being enough doctors um, during the week. And what um, my friend was saying is that, like, actually, this is a fairly clever tactic because by offering this particular concession, which actually in a much more fundamental way damages the way that the NHS is able to function, Jeremy Hunt has a free reign to, ah, Ofcom, I need a... I need a good word um to totally stuff the functions of yeah. um, the yeah. nhs and blame it on the junior doctors and saying well they demanded this concession i gave it to them it's not my fault we don't have enough money and don't have enough doctors because we don't have enough money um do you see a similar agenda in higher education in terms of yeah. failure being the aim
1: absolutely absolutely or or um um, if not necessarily failure in every case, certainly engineered crises. I mean, that's clearly what's happening in the NHS. Although um, you know, look from a sort of outside perspective, but and that's clearly the case in terms of universities needing or saying that they need to. Um, uh, to run surpluses. That's the case at SOAS and the justification, I think, for a lot of the the course cuts. As far as I know, SOAS makes a surplus already, but there's this notion that they need to make a bigger one and that's why they have to make cuts. The same was the case at um, King's College London, uh, I think, I guess it was last year, I think. They cut a lot of jobs in the um, health sciences um, department or or faculty, I guess that's faculty. Um, And yeah, there's this notion that, that a surplus needs to be run in order to I mean, there are various reasons why, and it depends, varies from institution to institution. I think the case at King's was that they needed to run a surplus in order to fund borrowing to build new facilities. And this notion is that the the university needs to grow. You know, it has to grow, it has to grow, it has to grow. Because um, universities are being forced to, and let's just clarify, by the way, managers are very happy to be forced in in these cases. It's not as if they're unwilling participants. But universities are being forced to adopt the logic of being businesses they have to grow, and they have to expand.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I think it's very telling that um, the response to the way that the government has reordered higher education in the last five-plus years um, has been to channel that pressure down on workers and students and not resist and push it back up um, at the government. Um, you know, when... When the manager comes to you and says, "You know, sorry, we can't, we can't pay you um, more for more hours. We, you know, we can't give you a, um, a fair wage. We can't bring the cleaners in house. Um, we can't afford not to cut this course." Um, uh, the argument is that there are these realities out there that we can't contest, and that which you are refusing to deal with in your childlike way. And therefore that 's why we're not going to be acquiescing any in any of these demands, leaving aside whether, in actual fact, they will save money or provide better education as a result of um, of the changes they 're trying to force in. but their instinct um, uh, university managers in many cases is is to channel that pressure down and the only response politically um, uh, and the, you know, we can learn from the um, the doctors here um, as well as from many other sectors is to make it feel like the constraints um, from below are um, uh, as severe if not more severe and so they can turn that pressure back um, onto, um, onto the government and the government can feel like uh, it's, on, it's, it's on the back foot but crucial in that is going to be the necessity of breaking apart this model of um, uh, either universities or hospitals which are competing with each other because as soon as you're an institution competing for a share of a market your instinct is not to you know club together with other universities and say hang on government this is really not acceptable your instinct is to say well who can do the least worse out of these changes and actually some universities um who are um historically speaking well placed um do very well out of the um the new fee regime because it brings in um huge sources of 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 revenue so i think breaking apart the sort of imposed silos um, that that get generated as a result of this model of of higher education is an important part of the way in which we push back.
1: I mean, I'd agree with everything that that James has just said. Just to add to the the, the, the what he said about um, how universities are being forced to compete with each other and how um, some universities will be very are well placed actually in that situation and actually tacitly welcome it in a lot of ways. That's the same thing is is. You know, it's more and more clear in, in the in the uh, green paper. So the idea of um, universities being assessed for their teaching. One of the the things that will be going into that assessment of the value of the teaching is um, the employment of graduates afterwards. So the most prestigious, for various reasons, the most prestigious graduates from the most prestigious universities are perceived as the most you know the best employees, and they are much more likely to get. Um, to be employed afterwards, and to be employed sooner, and to be employed in better jobs, and so actually, it's very clear that the the TeF, the Teaching Excellence Framework, can and will most likely reinforce precisely these divisions even further, which is um, yeah just yet another reason why it's obviously quite very problematic.
0: Um, just to very briefly return to this point of why is it that university management seems so loath to challenge the government? Um, on these reforms, while there's a kind of revolving door between uh, politics and academia, right, in terms of, like, at its most senior levels. So Valerie Amos at SOAS being one notable example, the other being Malcolm Grant, the malignant moustache himself, Mm -hmm. um, who went from being the provost at UCL to being the chair of uh, what was previously known as the NHS Commissioning Board, now is NHS England. He's also still... Chancellor at University of York. So, actually, you've got these—I um, mean—villainous figureheads, which somehow manage to embody these democratic deficits in politics, in academia, mm. and in the NHS all at once.
2: And let's not forget that the common sense um, that's, that that these people inhabit is one which is borrowed and which draws on the language of financial markets. So it's no coincidence that uh, uh, a huge, well, I wouldn't, it's not a huge number because it's a small body, but a, a disproportionate number of people on the SOAS Board of Trustees are accountants or um, come from investment banks, standard charters very well represented, so it's KPMG. Um, uh, these are apparently the people we think are best placed to judge um, what kind of strategic direction our universities um should be should be going in, and the language of finance, risk, sustainability, um, uh, percolates down to alarmingly low levels in the university. So, in the recent course cuts debacle at um, SOAS, a senior manager was using terms like um, our offering of um, courses, our portfolio of courses, the stocks of uh, of um, uh, of courses and students that we that we have. This is a fundamental reordering of the way in which the university is being managed. And it it draws on um, it draws on logics which are completely alien to what it is the university should be about, which is um, knowledge production and knowledge sharing.
0: I mean, I like I offer this as a provocation um, how do you critique this language of, the, the presence of this language of financial management without insisting on what I think is an elitist and reactionary discourse about the specialness of academia and the specialness of knowledge production? How do you turn what is potentially a reactionary um, position into something that's propositional, transformative and radical? It's a question: I ask you guys.
2: Democratise the university. Yeah. Um, you know, you. Th- there is a problem in lots of universities that academics are, are increasingly less well represented in university bodies. Um, but um, this is as true for students as it is for support staff, as it is for those people who move through the university space. They are their voices aren't represented, and, and whilst I would defend the importance of. Um, um, Producing and looking after expertise in universities, because after all, if you don't have expertise, um, uh, what are universities for? Um, the way in which you can frame these, um, uh, frame an alternative language which doesn't sound elitist, and I know best because I work with my brain, um, is by making it a genuine conversation between um, students and um, uh, and teachers, between and um, between students, teachers, and those who work. Um, Around then, and that means I, I don't think you can easily easily resolve um, where the, you know the, this question of um, activism versus academia or worker versus scholar or, or all these things these these categories we have them um, but our job should be to problematize them constantly um, they're they 're terms that are useful but which constantly need to be challenged and and and, and thrown back so The way to make this sound like um, a battle between two sets of experts, one academic and one technocratic, politicians and and financiers, is to uh, open it up to a a wider community of people. Um, And by doing that, um, uh, undoubtedly, um, uh, the forces defending universities will be stronger.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, uh, (laughs) I don't actually have very much to add to that, but that that is precisely the point that I think this... um, you know, in a way, talking about casualization is a very um, can be you can address the issue in a very kind of limited and focused way. But as we've as we've you know outlined over the last fifty minutes, it's it, it's so much broader. It relates to these changes that are so much broader, and the way to confront those changes is to. Um, is to transform the way that we think about universities and the way that everybody who's implicated in them who's i mean I hate this word in general but a stakeholder in some way everybody who has a participant who is a participant who has a role um who's affected by a university everybody has to be represented in the way or to participate in the way that they um the way that they are run that's that's i mean i don't you know i don't I don't have a sort of institutional form for that off the top of my head, but that's the sort of that's the way it has to be thought about.
0: I mean, I guess what I'm arguing for is a kind of radical dismantling of the university. Um, One of the things that uh, I know that we've spoken about before um, is looking at the work that academics do, right? And aside from the deadlines and the massive workloads and the stress and dealing with students who haven't done the reading, um, lots of... The intellectual labour is really fun um, I, I speak as someone who's been uh, out of academia for the last year I'm a barmaid and it's rubbish um, I would take crying in the library over James Joyce over what I do um, for a living I'd I'd grab it with both hands and one of the propositions I think we need to have is saying this intellectual labour that academics do should be available to everyone mm. as intellectual leisure mm. um, and you need to open up the spaces and the resources of a university um, rather than emphasising the specialness and the separateness of the university um, counter the veneer of um, accessibility that the technocrats like to cloak um, their uh, their um, policies in Take, take that back and say, no, we'll be mm. the ones to really do it by mm. opening this up mm. to everyone. Um, the university functions in a neighbourhood, not just kind of squats in a space and excludes everyone if they don't have the correct amount of money or social capital.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd, I, I, um, I've been in university, in university, in the same university for, for longer than I care to sort of acknowledge and I've very much been kind of socialised into that, that way of, Practicing academic work and to thinking about it, but I agree with, absolutely with what you said. I don't, I don't know how to sort of achieve that democratization of the university, but it's really. I suppose I'd come back to the 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 point James made and I echoed earlier, which is that there needs to be, among other things, there needs to be this um, a total doing away with the idea that there are people who manage the university, people who work in the university, and people who essentially you know, our customers of the university, because that's essentially how students are sort of thought about in terms of how it works. And that's probably been the case for a lot longer than, you know, since the new fee, that has been the case for a lot longer since before um, the new fee regime. So um, I don't really know how to sort of make those changes or how to think about those changes, but that clearly is, you know, when we talk about um, trying to resist casualization, we're not wanting, it's not just about returning to an older model of, Secure permanent work for academics, but still in this very hierarchical institution it 's uh, certainly for myself it would be about um doing away with hierarchies as well so it's, it's, there 's a much wider conversation to be had it 's not just about defending a model of it 's not just about i mean if we can sort of broaden this more generally it 's not just about returning to the you know the thirty glorious years and and the, the post war settlement of what the public sector is or what work is and so on. It's also about transforming it, which is a much wider conversation and don't have any of the answers, but, uh, you know, that's the conversation to have, I guess.
0: So we've got five minutes left of the show. You're listening to Navara FM on Resonance 104.4 FM. Um, I'm Ash Sarkar. I'm here with Harry Stopes and James Eastwood. Five minutes left. We've covered an awful lot of ground. Um, I would really like to hear your not necessarily final thoughts, but maybe your securative, summing up kind of thoughts, um, and also mention the conference that I know is mm-hmm. coming up on fighting casualisation in education. So,
2: I think what having having this conversation has been really eye-opening. Actually, even for me, um, sort of thinking through these issues in a very explicit way, it's very healthy. Um, that challenge that Harry alluded to just now is actually for me really central. Um, because we need to think about um, not simply a return to how things were, um, because things were never actually um, that great in all kinds of ways, but um, a a redevelopment of um, what kind of a university we want. um, And we need to start contesting the terms on which we organise the university as soon as possible. Um, So I... I think I would encourage those who are involved in universities um uh, who are maybe on precarious contracts who have colleagues who are on precarious contracts um who are studying at universities and see uh, around them people working on um on in these in these conditions to engage um with these issues and help us to learn from each other about how um casualization relates to what the university has become and is becoming Um, And to enrich the way that we struggle against it, Um, because unless these conversations are broad um, and involve these sort of wider historical um, global perspectives, the alternatives we offer are going to be um, as stale as the the models that we are trying to uh, replace.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> the conference that that you alluded to, Ash, I'll just talk about that, and then perhaps offer some final thoughts, if I can try and be summative. Um, the conference is two weeks tomorrow, so on the twenty first of um, November at UCL, and there'll be a range of speakers talking on um, trying to break down these the questions that we talked about, addressing most of what we've talked about here, and trying to work through. Going from the, if you like, the meta demand of end casualisation to, on the one hand, some more kind of concrete demands in the here and now, which are more aimed at how universities operate, you know, now rather than how they might eventually be. Um, but then also thinking about what what it is that we're envisaging. Um, in a kind of in a wider global sense. So what is what is it what does it mean to be fighting against casualisation? That's what the conference is about. So it's the twenty first of November. Um, it's at UCL. You can find out about it on our website, which is fightingcasualization.org. dot um, I think we've got like a minute left, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, gu- I guess I'll leave it to you to sum up, Ash. But um, I've, yeah, I think this conversation has been really um, illuminating because it. Um, Touches upon these questions of of which something that comes up again and again in Navarra, I think, and I you know listen to Navarra pretty much every week. This this sense that we can't just we can't just contra you know what, for example, the Labour Party or lots of people on the left in Britain talk about, which is trying to get back to how things were. We've got to think about how they should be and could be and will be in the future, and that I think is the challenge that I'm interested in.
0: Okay, I mean, in summing up, I guess uh, I would. Offer three propositions. One is dismantle the university, failing that, decolonize the university, failing that, democratize the university. Um, but that's just because I'm no longer in the university and I can articulate things in quite a vague way. That's quite fun. Um, thanks so much, everyone, for listening. Uh, thank you, Harry and James, for coming on. You guys have been fantastic guests. Don't forget to tune in next week. And if you liked this content, why not subscribe to Navarra Media by going to support.navara.media.com? Thank you. Bye.